0: What's up, everyone? My name is Evan Kidd. Welcome back to Convincing Creatives Podcast. Today we have Melissa Meritz on the show. Melissa is an editor and writer. She's worked at places like Spin, Rolling Stone. She was a staff writer for Entertainment Weekly as well as the LA Times. And she's also a supervising producer on HBO's Vice News Tonight. She was also the founding editor at New York Magazine's Vulture website. And she just recently is now the author of the new book. I actually have it here. All right, all right, all right. An Oral History of Dazed and Confused. This is a very awesome book if you're a Richard Linklater fan, if you're a fan of cinema, specifically cinema in the 90s. Um, But this book's great because Melissa really worked hard to chat to the cast and the crew of this movie to document the making of the good, the bad, and just how it all went down. And I think it was a really awesome read. She talked to director Richard Linklater, people like Matthew McConaughey, Ben Affleck, Parker Posey, many, many more. So obviously this was a really exciting interview to get to chat about how she pulled that off, the process, and the way that she created a compelling narrative as a writer. I think she did a really great job. Additionally, we also talk a lot about cinema, Uh, obviously Richard Linklater and his influence on it because we're both big Linklater fans. But at the end of the day, also just how do people get stuff made? As a writer, she's done a lot of different things and how do you get projects off the ground when it seems difficult in the beginning? How do you motivate yourself to create work? And I think we had a really insightful conversation about that that you won't wanna miss. Before we jump into the full episode, I'm just gonna take a quick second and plug my new movie. It's called Panda Barrett. It is over on Tubi if you wanna stream it for free. Yep, free 99 or you can rent it or buy it on Amazon. Uh, Panda Bear, it's a wacky movie. It's a fun kind of comedy drama that gets a little serious and has some heart. So I think it's balancing the laughs and the tears. So I think you'll enjoy it. If you like that kind of thing, it is available to watch. But anyway, enough plugging, that's out there. And now I'm going to kick it over to the full interview with Melissa Maritz. Thanks for listening. First and foremost, I definitely want to commend you on writing your book. I do actually have a copy, so it was really Ah, awesome. great. Yeah, it was a really fun read. Um, I'm a huge Linklater fan, so for me, it was like a real treat to just dive into the book, uh, which we'll get to later. But before we get to the book, um, you're a writer, you're a creative person, you've been around music and art, you've written for a couple different publications. Uh, Let's rewind to what kind of gave you your passion to start writing. Like, What was kind of that initial spark for you?
1: Well, I've always been interested in um, music and movies and books and just like the arts generally. Um, and um I, I don't think I even really understood that you could have that as a job for a very long time. <laughs> um, but um You know, I think I started freelancing a little bit when I was in college. Um, My first real job was at an alt weekly in the Twin Cities called City Pages, which is a really great alternative paper that actually just shut down, sadly, not that long ago. I think maybe last year. Um, but that's really where I got my big break. And I was, first I was a music editor there, then I was an arts editor there, um, and went from there to New York where I worked for a number of different places. I worked for um, Spin Magazine for a while, Rolling Stone, um, the LA Times. Um, I was a founding editor at Vulture at New York Magazine. Um, I said Entertainment Weekly for a while. I worked on television at Vice. They had a program called uh, Vice News Tonight on HBO. Um, where I was a supervising producer. Um, and for a little while, I had a radio show for a couple of years on Sirius. Cool. And I um, had two other women who co-hosted it with me. And it was really just us interviewing people who we were interested in and talking about anything we were interested in, movies, TV shows, um, albums, um, kind of from a feminist perspective, although we had different ideas about what that meant. <laughs>
0: yeah. Very cool. So when it comes to writing at the end of the day, like this is a very, I guess, cliche question, but what do you feel like makes a compelling story? Something, you know, obviously you're gonna take a lot of time to research, to, you know, write, to outline, you know, what do you think it is that makes a story interesting at the end of the day?
1: I think it has to, the first thing is it has to be interesting to the writer. I mean, I think that, and that sounds like such an obvious thing, but it's really not. I mean, I think a lot of people take on assignments because they feel like they'll have an audience and you can just tell that there's a lack of connection between the person who's writing about that subject and the subject that they're writing about. So I think it personally has to be very relevant to you and make you feel something. Um, I love reading people who write about things they love as much as I love them writing about things they hate or things that, you know, just kind of feel like they have that dichotomy somewhere within them. Um, so that's probably the most important thing to me. Voice is really important. Um, if it's a voice that I feel is compelling, I will read about almost anything. Um, yeah, those are probably the two main things.
0: Yeah, no, I think, I think that's really good. Like I can only speak for myself, but like anytime I write something, whether it's a film script or, you know, an article or anything, or even just like an idea for a documentary or something, a YouTube video, a lot of times it's the weird little niches that like I'm interested in. I'm like, would anyone else care about this? But at the end of the day, I have to pull that out and be the person to, you know, shine the light down the tunnel and say, what's this? Let's talk about that. And then you kind of, you know, with the internet find, oh, well, maybe I'm not actually the only person who cares about that. Like, do you ever find that with stories and ideas?
1: Oh, absolutely. I think the things you think no one else is going to care about sometimes end up being the most resonant or the things that feel personal to you. I mean, you know, I read this book about dazed and confused and the things that people feel are the most relevant to them are the most arcane things. You know, like people will tell me that some poster that Wiley Wiggins had in the background of his room was the same poster they had when they were in high school. So they felt like that was them. So you never really know what people are going to relate to. It could be something that seems minor
0: yeah absolutely um well speaking of things people care about i really am a huge link later fan so let's talk about dazed and confused and talk about the book um you know i guess before we jump into like how you made it I'm, I'm pretty sure you probably like Dazed and Confused. Like you probably have to like <laughs> the movie to write the book. Do I have that correct?
1: Oh, definitely. I yeah. mean, I I was the perfect person to yeah. uh, watch this movie. I was going into my first year of high school when it came out. I saw it in the fall in the theater. So oh, to nice. me, it was like, even though it was set in the 70s, it felt like a preview of what high school was going to be like. And it's funny because I think at the time I watched it and I thought, this is going to be awesome. And now I watch it and I think, Oh, it's it's kind of sad and kind of wistful. And like, there's a painful quality to it too that I don't think I necessarily appreciated when I was younger. It's almost Um, like full circle. That's crazy that you were in the theater watching it. And then, you know. Yeah, I mean, I think I would see it in a very different way if I was watching it for the first time as an adult. And I think a lot of my favorite movies are movies that I get something different from over time. Um, Like, I mean, I wouldn't say this is one of my favorite movies, but my husband and I were just talking about The Breakfast Club the other day and how we identify with the teacher now.
0: (laughs) So that kind of <laughs> changes as you get older, absolutely.
1: Yeah, yeah. like you, you you get a different thing from it. So I yeah. think now I see um, Dazed and Confused as a movie about nostalgia in a way mm-hmm. that I probably couldn't when I saw it as a teenager.
0: Absolutely, yeah. And I know Linklater has talked about that's almost like an anti-nostalgia movie to him. But for yeah. some people, it is literally a nostalgia movie, and I find that so interesting. Can you talk about yeah. like Have you seen like both sides of the coin?
1: Yeah, I mean, this is exactly what made me this was my entry point into why I wanted to write this book, because I'd seen him in an interview, saying that he wanted it to be an anti nostalgia movie. And I thought, how did this anti nostalgia movie become the biggest nostalgia movie for a lot of people of my generation? I mean, it makes people feel nostalgic, not just for the 70s. um, But for high school, now it makes people nostalgic for the 90s. The cast is nostalgic about the time they spent making it. Um, And it's funny, because you see embedded in this movie there's all these times where Linklater expressly says don't be nostalgic about the past i mean you know you have a character who says the 70s obviously suck mm-hmm. <laughs> trying to remind you like don't think this was a better time and you yeah. know um police in london at the end on the football field saying if i ever start referring to these as the best years of my life uh, remind me to kill myself you know I mean, he's specifically saying don't be nostalgic about this time uh, but people kind of don't hear that because um you know it as Linklater says in the book, cinema is kind of a nostalgia machine. It doesn't matter what the message is. People are going to get something different just from the glamour of it being on screen.
0: Yeah. And there, and I think there's a way, too, that with cinema, you can just be the character. So you can sort of see things through whatever character you're, you're empathizing to some degree. And I think, you know, cin- cinema is an empathy exercise when it works really well, in my opinion. So
1: Absolutely. And that's why Linklater says the same thing about war movies that you can make an anti-war movie and it still seems like the kind of movie you might show to soldiers. And they're just like, yeah. I mean, in the the book, Jarhead, he talks about literally doing that when he was a soldier, that they showed them anti-war movies that they thought they showed them Apocalypse Now. And all these soldiers were like, this is great, you know? So it's something is, um, you know, you can't control the way that people attach meaning to your work when you're a filmmaker.
0: and there's so much letting go to as a filmmaker, like, you know, you don't sit next to someone in the theater watching the movie that you made and telling them, okay, this is why this is happening. They're taking that in, you know, they're the judge of that. And I find that is so interesting. Um, It's really a letting go, I think, of sorts as an artist.
1: Definitely. Yes, that's well said. Yeah.
0: Um, So in terms of the book, why would you say, you know, dazed and confused? I feel like it's that nostalgia comes from the fact that in a way, it's like, this hangout movie, and I feel like people sometimes maybe see themselves or a version of themselves uh, in the characters hanging out, just doing normal things. Whether it's the 70s, the 90s, or now, I feel like people can relate to you know a time in their life where they did hang out with friends from school, and you know that's that's kind of a lot of what the film is about. Um, what, what do you think was the biggest like, uh, pull to that in relatability? Because I know there's, there's folks who are older, younger, who see this movie over many generations that always find, I think, a bit of that Hangout vibe in the movie.
1: Yeah, well, I think that's one of the reasons why it's become so popular because yeah. you don't, you wouldn't necessarily re-watch a movie that had a very specific plot to it because you know what's going to happen. It gets tired after a while. But with a hangout movie where there is no real plot, you it is, you're like, you're watching it because you're part of that hanging out. It's like you're at this beer best with these guys. You're at the pool hall with these guys. Yeah. Um, and so many people have said to me, like, I know I had a Darla at my school. Not just me. Not just, like, I recognize my self in those characters, but I know all the people at my high school who I can say were those people in the movie. Um, and it's interesting to me that Linklater's high school friends ended up suing him, some of them did, um, because their names were in the movie, and they they saw themselves in characters that Linklater says, those characters weren't based on them, they're named after them because I wanted names, but they're not based on them. So even the people, uh, you know, it happens to everybody, even yeah. the people whose names were used in the movie thought they saw themselves in characters who Linklater says or not them yeah
0: so I guess kind of shifting gears into the way is making movies I feel like obviously time is such a big factor in his work um you spoke with him in making the book um a what was that like because I mean that's cool he's you know in my opinion one of the coolest filmmakers out there doing the thing and you know B, uh what makes his movies one of a kind because you know I, I think he offers this like very specific look at it just people in small relationships over time, specific to America, I think, um, and just American things that people wouldn't necessarily think about because they're kind of overlooked because someone would say, oh, that's a mundane day. That's not that big a deal. But I, but I think it's the mundane day that's that's everything in so much of his work.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you see that in something like the Before series, right? That like something that seems like it's just one day, or that is literally just one day, um, when you look back on it from the sequel or from the, you know, the third movie in the film suddenly seems incredibly significant. And you can, um, you know, draw out the trajectory of certain relationships, of certain people's um, narrative arcs um, from these very specific small moments. And that's true in life too, right? This is something that we're always doing with ourselves. Like, oh, this thing that didn't seem that important when I was 21 ended up being a defining thing in my life. So I think that's very true to how we experience our lives um, off screen, too. Yeah.
0: Um, And then obviously, you know, you talk to Richard Linklater, you talk to other folks like Matthew McConaughey, Ben Affleck, Parker Posey. Um, how did you go about navigating that? You know, I'm, I'm always curious in the logistical side of things as much as the creative side. And I think yeah. a lot of our listeners who are artists or writers or anyone, you know, the, the logistical is always what leads to the creative. So how did you kind of, you know, weave that together, talk to these folks, um, and, you know, really kind of figure out what questions to ask them? Because I'm sure a lot of their time is kind of limited and hard to get a hold of
1: yeah well i tried to do as much research as i could yeah. before i talked to the big people um, and, you know, you would be surprised by the people who gave me the most. <laughs> I think probably one of the instrumental interviews I did in this book was the first interview I did, which was with the unit publicist. Okay. So I didn't even think I was going to interview this guy. I just uh, reached out to him and I was like, hey, do you have any of your old promotional materials um, that I could look at? You know, yes. just looking at like archival materials before I interviewed people. And I ended up staying on the phone with him for three. 3 hours. Um for the first interview and you know I called him back later and had follow up interviews with him too and I think every story he told me checked out. Um, that doesn't always happen obviously there's some people who still you know who were involved in one movie in their lifetime and they think that they knew everything and then when you talk to the people who were mainly involved they're like oh that guy doesn't know what he's talking about but this guy really did and he part of the reason was you know it was a different time in, in film the unit publicist was staying in the same hotel that all of the actors were staying at he was involved in a lot of the parties that the actors were having he had a lot of inside access and it was one of the biggest films that he worked on so it's very you know vivid in his memory and that was true for a lot of these people it was one of the first big projects that they worked on so their memories are automatically going to be I think more vivid so I did a lot of those interviews early and I asked those people who's the behind the scenes person who you think knows the most and then I called the person and asked that person the same question once I talked to all the behind the scenes people I started reaching out to the main stars and kind of went from there.
0: Awesome, awesome. Um, what do you think was like the biggest challenge with compiling everything together? I know there's obviously logistical things, but was, was there ever a moment where you were like, Oh, man, this is this is, you know, a snowball, it's rolling, whether I'm with it or not at this point. Because um, I know, I mean, the the book is, is a big book, but I've listened to a couple other podcasts you were on. And they said the book was originally like 600 some odd pages, was it not?
1: Yeah. Yeah. It was too long. Even I know that I just kind of turned everything in and I was like, I know this is going to get a major chunk taken out of it because it's maybe more interesting to me than it would be your average layperson. Um, But yeah, it was much longer. It did not need to be that long. Um, I was glad that people helped me out with what to cut out. Um, But I think the biggest change was that originally I wanted it just to be an oral history. Like I would write an introduction and then everything would just be quotes. I did not want to write introductions to the chapters. And I gave it to my friend Rob Tannenbaum, who wrote, co-wrote a a really great oral history called I Want My MTV, about the history of MTV. Um, And he really can convinced me to write introductions. Um, I think I want in my head, I thought I want this to be like a Linklater movie where yeah. there's not like a very clear arc to the story. It could, it could just be people talking yeah. and you kind of get the same vibe. But I think his point was people are not going to have the context for it that you have and you kind of have to hold their hands through it. So I'm really glad i think that was the biggest change from just like a mass of quotes to something that um a little bit put a more obvious frame on it
0: yeah What well, what do you think is something that maybe surprised you the most um you know obviously you're a Linklater fan was there anything you learned or were um, surprised or delighted by in the process of research
1: i mean I think my favorite part of researching this book was talking to the people who went to high school with Linklater. I mean, it's, you know, all of these people who went to school in small town, Texas, who seemed so smart and so funny, and could tell stories like you wouldn't believe. (laughs) And just the vivid memories they have of of going to school at that time and what is and is not reflected in the movie. And, you know, you think about it, like what if somebody who you didn't know all that well from your high school made a movie about your high school and a lot of you and your friends thought that you recognized yourselves in those characters? Like, what would that feel like? Mm -hmm. And I think for some people it was exhilarating and for some people it was really hard to realize they were minor characters in other Mm -hmm. people's lives. Um, It was just kind of fun. I think that was something that happened hadn't really been researched before, at least not that I had seen, and these people had not been interviewed. So it was fun to be the first one to do that.
0: Absolutely. Well, it's it's always those minor, you know, characters one way or the other people in your life that, you know, maybe it was your your boss at a job, you only worked for a year, or someone that has an impact on you, that is a character, but it's also like a fulcrum for a development. Like you yes. mentioned earlier, there's, there's a moment that you only can recognize later in life. And I think that's a lot of what makes, you know, the movie work, because I think a lot of the 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 interesting parts of watching this movie, you know, I've seen it a number of times, but like, I don't really watch it the same way I watched it when I was in high school. And, you know, I think that's a good thing. <laughs>
1: like, yes. <laughs> I <don't... laughs> well, I think that... The biggest part of that, I mean, the one thing I do remember being kind of bummed out about when I was in high school, seeing it was how, you know, I was in a theater filled with high school kids who would cheer for these bullies. And even then it really bummed me out to think about that. But now I watch it and I think, wow, the bullies are not as powerful as I thought they were when I watched it, when I was in high school, like they're really kind of pathetic. They're kind of kid bullies. And for them, maybe these are the best years of their lives. You know, you can see these people kind of growing up to having lives that might not be as great afterwards so it really does change your perspective and your sympathies with the characters
0: yeah well and and that's the thing i think you know as you know if kids watch something they're just seeing it a lot of times for what it is in a moment but you know if you watch it now you look at the bully character and and it's just sad it's like oh this person it's it's a it's more of a tragedy honestly it's like oh wow there's a lot going on behind the scenes to why they're doing what they're doing and um you know i think there's just you know so much going on behind the scenes and stuff like this, whether it's Dazed or any other movie.
1: Yeah, and you know, there's such good tiny details that make those characters more pathetic. Like I think about Ben Affleck's character, when you first see him, he pulls his truck in and he asks Cole Hauser's character if he can borrow his car because he's out of gas. Like that's the first time you see him as he's showing up out of gas his car is a total clunker you know they're they're, before he even shows up they're talking about how he flunked out for the billionth time you know you know all this stuff as the introduction to this character so i might not have noticed that when i was younger but now i definitely noticed like this guy is not supposed to be a hero here (laughs) right
0: yes oh totally um, so I would say too, you know, you're someone who's researched a lot, both in music and film and arts, uh, creativity, things like that. Where, where do you see, you know, indie, you know, music, indie cinema going forward? I mean, obviously you've spent so much time looking at, you know, the 90s when Linklater was making Dazed. And, you know, specifically, this is almost a question within a question because the, that jump from Slacker to Dazed was enormous for him. Yes. And yeah. I think a lot of people don't look at that. You know, they think, oh, that's just what you do as a filmmaker. But, you know, you know, as a indie filmmaker, I look at that and I'm like, oh, my gosh, like he he went from like twenty thousand dollars to then getting a song that costs more than slacker like four times yeah. more than Slacker. And, and then, you know, he's that's just to do a song, let alone the whole movie. Like, I mean, you can imagine there would be some growing pains and some challenges and things like that. Like, do you, do you feel like a lot of times that is a challenge to being an artist? Because I know a lot of people are like, well, how do you get discovered? How do you do this? How do you do that? But I feel like there's also these moments where you are growing, but then there's these growing pains you have to go through that I think not a lot of people see.
1: Yeah, well, you know, a lot of people have so much nostalgia. A lot of people I talked to for this book have so much yeah. nostalgia for that period of indie filmmaking. You know, people are always quick to tell me, and, and this is true, that, you know, it was a time when you could go from making a film entirely charged to, like, your dad's gas card, which, you know, yeah. Linklater did with, with some other money also. Sure. Um uh, to, you know, making a $6 million movie for a major studio. And yeah. people say, you know, you, there's no middle ground anymore. It's either yeah. you're making like a super micro budget indie movie or you're making like a Marvel movie, that there's yeah. not this like $6 million budget anymore. From my fan perspective, and I'd like to, to ask you as a filmmaker, um, I am never somebody who thinks like, oh, things were better in the past generally. As you can see from this book, I'm very critical yeah. and uh, about nostalgia. Um, But I do think that, you know, I think things are better than ever from a fan perspective for movies. Like I'm watching movies that might have never gotten made. Still only certain movies were picked for that $6 million spot. There are a ton of movies that never even got made. So I love being able to see stuff on YouTube that's self-released or like find some South by Southwest movie that, um, you know, no critics wrote about that I loved. And Um, I am just exposed to a lot and same, same with, um, with music and same with books and self-publishing, you know, for books. Um, I love all that stuff. I know it's probably harder financially to get stuff made on the other end. So what do you think? Do you have nostalgia for a period of time when you probably weren't even alive to be. Yeah, I was films. gonna say, I, you know,
0: I was like three years old at the time, so you know, for me, I can't really say I was a part of it. But yeah. you know, I, I look back at a lot of these movies for a lot of inspiration, and obviously, you know, Linklater is like one of the top three filmmakers that are the reason I am a filmmaker, and so you know, there, there's a lot of that. But I think currently in this day and age, it's as you said, you know, there are so many amazing voices making work, and people. Putting ideas and perspectives out there that you just wouldn't have gotten 10, yeah. 20 years ago. And that is major. Like, I actually don't think we fully recognize how major that is currently. Um, cause I discover stuff every day. Like you said, that's something someone self-released or something that, you know, has been out for two years. And I'm like, oh, I've never even heard of that. Awesome. Yeah. Add it to my queue. Um, and you know, obviously my, my Netflix and Tubi queues and whatever, they're all just like hundreds of movies deep and I just need more hours of the day. Um, yeah. but you know, I think for me, like the biggest challenge is like finding funding, finding exposure. And it's like a double-edged sword because it's almost like a genie came and was like, all the filmmaking gear you would ever need is cheaper than ever and super accessible. You know, I have like a 4k camera in my closet that even five years ago I never would have imagined I could own. Um, And I mean, technically I can make work that that's super cool and exciting, but then it's like, Oh, but there's a billion other yous doing the same thing because it's so accessible. So it's kind of like, A double edged sword. I don't know if that answers the question at all.
1: No, absolutely. So, in terms of funding, is it any easier to tell people who might contribute money to your project, like it will end up somewhere?
0: Yes. Versus, okay, yeah. Major cool thing. Because, like, since I am the person who at the end of the day is basically, you know, deciding will it get made or not, I know that I am going to be like, hey, no matter what happens, whether it's, you know, Amazon or, you know, recently Tubi's been where I put my last feature film. And that was really cool and, uh, you know, or even just YouTube, like, you know, it'll end up yeah. somewhere, worst case scenario. Um, so I think people are excited just to be a part of it. Like, you know, I, th- I think connecting with like a small but passionate uh, group of people who like your work, whether it's other filmmakers who just are like, hey, I see you doing that thing I do, or just people who are fans of, you know, like you said, true micro budget cinema. Um, I think that's what's like kind of propelling me day to day to like write and create stuff. Because I think I'm kind of like, going into any script I'm making thinking okay this is probably not going to get picked up by someone so I have to kind of like do the budgeting while I'm writing so that that's kind of a weird dance sometimes but I find it is interesting um when you do finally get to that point where you put the work out there because it's almost like tailor-made for that moment if that makes any sense
1: definitely yeah
0: yeah um well I guess this kind of Connects to the next question I had. Um, so my second feature film, I did make it for about five hundred bucks. So it was like the smallest, wow. cheapest,
1: wow, <laughs> craziest
0: thing I've ever done. Yeah, um, I, you know, my my first feature and like first couple shorts even had bigger budgets, bigger crews. And it was funny because this was like right around just before the pandemic. And I was like, okay, I need to just make this or else it's not going to happen. And, and I'm really glad I did. But, um, you know, it was the type of thing where it's like, I'm going to be the camera operator and, you know, hope for the best. And, you know, that that's a lot of what I do by day to make money. So I felt comfortable operating a camera. But You know, for me, it was like, oh, man, I got to do this. But like I mentioned, there was that democratization of film. Are you seeing, you know, these types of movies coming down the pipeline? Because I almost feel like if Richard Linklater was my age, you know, maybe he would be doing a lot of that same stuff. And so I start to wonder. He did
1: that. Yeah. When he he I mean, his first film is a movie that he wrote, directed, acted in, did the sound for. Uh, He did everything um i mean like he was literally like you know holding out a boom mic to himself in some (laughs) in some scenes so i think that i think this stuff has kind of always been around you know and he financed that movie i actually don't know exactly what the budget was but it was very low budget lower than slacker um and he financed it by you know working on an oil rig for a while and then just seeing if he could make something himself so um I, i mean i think these types of filmmaking practices have kind of always been around. It's just the technology right. that's changed that's around it, or that's yeah. my theory anyway. <laughs> no,
0: no, I think I think you're very right, and I think um, you know. So I like I go to a lot of film festivals, and I meet people who are making work very similarly, and then you kind of start to realize, oh, that's just sort of like. How a lot of people are doing stuff because, like you mentioned earlier, you're you're kind of either doing that micro budget thing or you know maybe like a couple thousand, hundred thousand dollar budgets or something like that. But there, like you said, there are no real six million dollar movies that are happening on a regular basis. And then the next yeah. jump is a Marvel, a literal Marvel movie. So, right, do you feel yeah, like that's like where do you see that in terms of sustainability going forward? Do you feel like this is a sustainable model for creators and filmmakers and um, like, the future of American cinema? Like, do you have any thoughts on that?
1: I think when you're thinking of the future of American cinema, there are no sustainable models. I mean, I think that it's that is just constantly changing. Yes. And that change might be happening slowly or might be happening quickly. But I think part of the reason people have nostalgia for certain um, methods of distribution or production um, or even pre-production or development um, is because they misremember how things actually work. I mean, that's true for nostalgia anyway, right? You know, you you misremember your life on purpose in order to make it seem like it was better. So, I mean, that's what I think. I don't know, what do you think? Do you think it's sustainable?
0: No, but I mean, it, <laughs> I, I, I try to be positive. Like I try to find the, the good where there is good. and you know I think you know there are so many people just making really cool works, like I said earlier that you just wouldn't see. My, my fear is that you know people it's it's hard to get to a point where you're making consistent works like that, you know every couple mm-hmm. of years. People are doing it. like that that's kind of my goal for myself. Like I'm not even like when I when I went to film school, I aimed for like that kind of like you know indie auteur, maybe you, you work with Hollywood here and there. But now I'm just sort of like, I, I am so good making movies. Like I mean this when I say it. in North Carolina, that's my hometown home state. I love it. You know, I love working with the artsy people around here and just kind of like figuring it out. Like that's always been really fun to me. And so like I'm so good making movies here. My worry is that people will either kind of make one or two and be like, all right, now I'm gonna move to LA or they won't, you know, want to kind of do things like that forever. And so I think the biggest uh, challenge is just trying to figure out like, you know, how do you do that? And and I think what's interesting and you may have some uh, knowledge on this is like, I know a little bit just from research, like that's I think one of the reasons Linklater did Austin Film Society was to really create a community where there maybe wasn't one before. Like, uh, are you seeing those kind of communities Maybe like in terms of him, like helping him make work, and maybe inspiring him. Because I feel like when you have community, it helps keep yourself just a little more accountable. And like you know, okay, I will actually talk to this person and then say, hey, do you want to hold a boom pole or do whatever? So
1: yeah. Well, again, I think that that's like pre-YouTube. This was still happening. Like I interviewed um, Jay Duplass um, and Mark Duplass for this book. And Jay um, went to school in Austin and he said around that time that what they would do is you would just use like you know, your mom's video camera and make your movie and put it on a VHS tape. And then you'd all switch VHS tapes. And then like the next level up from that was like, somebody liked your VHS tape. (laughs) So like, you'd put it in a VCR and like project it on, you know, a screen on somebody's lawn or something. And like, that was their version of YouTube at the time. But I think these things are always kind of going on, like I said, in that kind of way, it's just the technology that's changing. But it is hard over time if you, if you're still, you know, watching your movie on someone's front lawn after yeah. 20 years of doing this, like you, I don't know. You know, it's interesting. I, I read this is kind of a tangent, but I rewatched um, American Movie the other okay. night with my husband. Um, and I always get mad when people see that movie as a comedy because to me it is such a beautiful movie to me there is nothing funny about those guys they are making their art regardless of who's going to see it and i think that is the most beautiful thing and it enrages me when people see it as like look at these poor schmucks those poor schmucks are devoting their whole lives to making what they love and i think that's i think that's amazing (laughs) hundred
0: percent no and i and i think like that that's it. Like, you know, it's it's cliche to just say do it because you want to do it. You know, I know we have a lot of filmmakers who listen to the podcast. Um, and, and I just keep harping that and I know that nobody wants to hear that because they want to hear, oh, I need to email this person and connect with that person, and then everything is off to the races. But you know, I think a lot of times, like we mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, you know, you have to know why you're making something. And if it's, yeah. you know, getting you out of bed at the end of the day and you're truly excited about it let that be enough. And I think so often, our society tells us that's not enough, because you know, you need to meet this benchmark, or you need to make this much money, or, you know, the side of someone's house is not enough. Now you need to be on the IMAX screen. And like, we just kind of build these things up for ourselves. And I think, uh, I don't know, I'm, I'm going on a tangent now. But like, I just think that is not I think that's part of what makes it feel not as sustainable sometimes.
1: Yeah. Well, and it's so hard to, because I think, um, you know, it's not just about t- talent. It's about timing. It's so much about timing and it's yeah. so random and so out of your control. Like you look at this with dazed and confused and, you know, obviously, Richard Linklater is an amazing filmmaker, super talented. I'm sure there were a million amazing filmmakers who were yeah. super talented at that time. But it just so happened that during an interview, he told a journalist that he was thinking about making this high school movie. And that journalist just so happened to be friends with a producer who was looking to work with a um, small budget filmmaker on a, The Next Step Up, a $6 yeah. million dollar studio movie. And <sighs> these things just kind of came together because of timing. Yeah. and it wasn't necessarily. The zeitgeisty thing that people think it was. Um, So I think it's, you know, if you're, it's not, filmmaking is not a meritocracy, (laughs) although we like to believe that it is. Um, And if you can't control what's going to happen with your film, all you can control is, you know, finding a way financially to keep doing what you love. Yeah.
0: Well, and also, too, I think like with Dazed and Confused, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I know some of the actors. It was their first time, more or less, right? Yes. Yeah. And then they would go on to do bigger and better things and crazy, you know, their their world would grow and, you know, their star would shine in ETC. But, you know, in that moment, that was them just saying, yeah, that sounds cool. Why not? You know, and I think the why not is is so major, like the $500 movie I made, I was telling you about that was just because a friend of mine who lives in Durham uh, he's a rapper and we were talking about a music video and eventually the scope for the music video involved this like mascot panda bear and it would be you know haunting him and we thought that was this weird you know surreal but like comedy drama thing and then he was like well I feel like the music video doesn't even matter and I'm like no what if we just wrote a script and yeah. like I wrote a script and then we made a movie and like you know I think sometimes that's how these things uh, organically take off because you know I didn't really cast the movie with, you know, actors, you know, there are some actors in it, but a lot of people were folks who were in the music side of things. Sometimes people who aren't actors can bring something a little different to a film, so.
1: Definitely. And I think sometimes people who have, you know, graduated, I put that in quotes, To, um, to bigger movies, the movies that they really care about are the tiny ones they made in the beginning of their careers. And that tells you something about yeah. the worth of those movies too. Like, I mean, I mean, the fact that one of the biggest surprises in my book was how much Ben Affleck has so much nostalgia for Days to Confused. You know, it's guy who's won Oscars yeah, yeah. <laughs> and this is still, you know, one of only two movies that he still has the poster in his house. So, you know, there's something about this like lower budget in this case, not low budget, obviously, but this more organic way of making films and not being so cognizant of like how it's going to land and what the box office is going to be and like what your publicist can say about it and all this stuff um, that really still feels, um, you know, important to people. Yeah.
0: 100 um well i feel like sometimes you just have to say something that you know is, is true to you because it meant something to you and i and i think yeah. uh like i actually recently found uh the short that link later yeah it was from like 2019.
1: oh the, the one that he did with uh, when they did the Linklater retrospective
0: yes yes it's like yes. 20 minutes or so
1: yes go on yeah. yeah that
0: that film was so fun to discover because i think i'm this rich richard linklater fan and then it was just on youtube and i found it one day very organically and I watched it and I loved it because it was just so true to whatever he was going through. Clearly, you know, it's like, yeah. he, it's just a day in his life. He's like trying to get a movie made and he's
1: like feeding yep. pigs, he on a farm. pigs on his yeah. farm. That's yeah. really yeah. his farm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like, you can tell, you know, that's <laughs> not farm, like but his, he his compound for he has yeah. the animals. Yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> and like, it just felt like, you know, this truly was like a day in his life and it was, you know, scripted, not a documentary, but you right. know, I, I think there was something to be said there because you know, he then would like go talk about his mental health and like went to a therapist. And like, that was so cool to see, because I think sometimes, like we said earlier, people think, oh, once someone, you know, makes a big film, they can't come back, bring it home and make something smaller again. And I find a lot of times, like whether it's a, a band that will come and do something very stripped down later on in their career, that's just a different sound or, you know, this short film that Linklater did a couple years ago that, uh, you know, he doesn't have to do a short film at this point in his career, but it was just really cool to see him yeah. do it. Like, why do you think stuff like that yeah. matters? Like, I don't, I don't know if I'm even asking the right question, but.
1: No, I mean, I think it really matters to him. You know, it's funny yeah. because um, once, like toward the end of um, my interviews with him, I think I asked him like, do you ever wish you could go back? And I didn't say the right words. What I meant was like, go back and make a film like Slacker, but I was like, and do like a tiny indie movie. And he was mm. like, I do that all the time. Like I could tell it made him <laughs> so mad that I asked that
0: question. Yeah.
1: Like, you know, I mean, I think it's true. It's like you look at a movie like Tape, which came at a point in his career when you would think he would just be making bigger and bigger budget movies. And he was like, no, I'm going to make this tiny movie that's set in like one room Um, is really scaled down. And I I really do think that like so much of what he does has this indie spirit to it, even if its budget is a little bit more.
0: A thousand percent. Um, yeah. Well, speaking of his movies, I have to ask before we land the plane on the podcast, do you have like a like top three favorite movies from Linklater? I know that's always sometimes hard to pick, but maybe just a couple that that mean a lot to you. I'm sure Dazed is on that list. But...
1: Yeah, I mean, Days has to be on the yeah. list. But um, I mean, Slacker was just so mind blowing to me when I first saw it. I and mean, I talked to a bunch of high school kids recently yeah. about it, and uh, they didn't seem... To understand why it was important. And I think what's gotten lost is how influential it's been. Like, mm-hmm. I don't think, I mean, I think even Jay Duplass said this. I don't think you would have the Duplass brothers doing what they do without a movie like Slacker um, and movies in that vein. Not that it all traces back to Slacker, but um. You know, he told me he was like, it was like seeing something that was like, oh, yeah, like that guy, I see that guy walking around Austin, and that guy directed a film. Yeah. Like, I can direct a film. You know, that guy's eating like crackers in the student union in Austin. <laughs> you need <laughs> to he see it around yeah. there. Yeah, and like, oh, I can do that too. And I think even, you know, yes. that, I also think like the format of it, the fact that like just talking is enough yeah. in a movie, you can really see in a lot of mumblecore movies. Um, I saw this great movie, Shithouse. Have you seen Shit House? Yes, yes. Um, which mm-hmm. I loved. Yeah. And I was like, oh, yeah. that's a movie that's very influenced by Richard Linklater. Um, so I just, I don't yeah. know, I love Slacker. It blew my mind at the time. I don't think I ever could real, I ever realized before I would seen it that you could make a movie like that. That's just one person passing the baton to a next person passing the baton to the next person. Yeah. Um, so yeah, those two. And then um, I mean, the before movies, yeah. I, I, I mean, I could go through, you want to go through all the Linklater movies. They're all great. <laughs> I,
0: I will be here all day. Seriously. I can talk yeah. Linklater all
1: day. Yeah.
0: The, the before movies, I mean, like where do you even begin? Like those movies are so good. And I, I love that it's like, I don't know. I have this weird soft spot for, like, indie film trilogies, because you often think trilogies are these big, grand blockbuster things. And, you know, yeah. I love the thought of, like, indie films continuing stories over time and, like, one of the best out there, clearly. So
1: Absolutely. And I think, too, you know, there's a lot of talk in my book, and I think a lot of people think about... um before Sunrise and in the in the trilogy about improvisation. I think a lot of people think like, oh, it's just all improvisation. And what people don't realize is that the improvisation with Link Linklater happens in the lead up to shooting. Like you can improvise, but he's not necessarily going to rewrite the script taking right. your ideas. Like you might, he might take a little bit of it and he might yeah. retool it to be more of like the dialogue that he wants, but um, it takes a lot of work to make something seem like it's off the cuff. Um, and I think that that's- <laughs> (laughs) really true of uh those three movies in particular
0: yeah well i I will say like when i was in film school and i was you know watching his movies a lot for the first time i was looking at the you know dvd bonus features because i'm a huge nerd and like i will watch the things where he's talking about doing rehearsal and that was one of the things you know i figured they'd do some rehearsal but like you said it felt so organic it was a big surprise to me just how much rehearsal they did yes a number of his films and obviously still does like um, yeah yeah Is that
1: a Yeah, I mean, people for days said that they had about two weeks of rehearsal that they showed up for before they started, and that that not only affected what the dialogue ended up being in the film, but also what the relationships between these people, these actors in real life ended up being, and also how those relationships ended up affecting what happened on screen. So he was very smart to have two weeks ahead of time um, for rehearsals, I think.
0: Is there any ways that you help yourself stay creative or convince yourself to creative, like be a creative person, a lot of times we have that critic in our head that's, you know, stopping ideas before they even get started. Um, How do you deal with that? How do you, you know, write a whole book? Because that is something that, you know, does take time and, you know, a lot of energy.
1: Uh, I think I have three answers to that question. Um, The first is that I try, um, like it's suggested in the artist's way to do the morning pages where you just write stream of consciousness for three pages. Um, I think that really helps just kind of be like, okay, just get words on the page. Um, The second thing is if I'm really frustrated, I try to look at something that I love that's similar to what I'm doing and then literally write out like what's happening in on this page? What's happening on this page? Like, not necessarily like, you know, this guy walks to the post office, but this is the scene where you see what his problem is. Just kind of like, almost like taking a clock mm. apart and then figuring out how to put my own clock back together yes. based on this other clock. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, so that's the second way. And then the third way, I think, is just research. I mean, I think research saves me in so many things. It makes me feel happier about my life when I'm interested in something. So um, even if it's fiction, um, you know, diving into one particular area of research that I think might be reflected in my art helps. I'd love to hear your answers to uh, that question.
0: Yeah, no, I, um, research is major for me. So like, you know, whether it's a podcast interview episode, I try to, you know, research the guest research, what they're interested in. And then also like for my own film stuff, I always try to, you know, similarly, research uh you know what what do people who are you know for example in my last movie it was a lot about grief um what do people who are grieving typically go through and i think about my own experience and then i try to write that down Um, i try to think also about interpersonal relationships with people so it's I think a lot of what I enjoy in movies is not always just the main character, what they're going through, but how are they interacting or not interacting with the other characters? So I think at the end of the day, I try to remember why I am doing something. And like for me, what has been super helpful uh, specifically with this season of convincing creatives is I have been in just a super, I mean, the last year has been a lot. And so, you know, the last year for me was just a, a big challenge creatively. I really didn't do much of anything, not that you have to do it because it's a pandemic, but, you know, it, it was just a way for me to be like, no, I need to remember everyone is going through this. Everyone has different processes and it's like being vulnerable weirdly helps me get over my own stuff to be able to like go out and make work again and kind of yes. keep that train going in a way, if that makes sense. So,
1: Yeah, you know, that reminds me saying like, why am I doing this? Um, of something that um, I listened to recently, the creator of BoJack Horseman, Raphael sure. Bob Blackford, Um, He was talking about how sometimes a feeling is more important than a pitch that when he was pitching um, Bojack Horseman, um, it wasn't so much about like, it's this horse he used to be famous. It was about this time he had in his real life when he was house sitting for somebody who had this massive house on a hill in Hollywood and he was just trying to make it and f- how lonely it was to be living on this house in the hill. And that loneliness was the feeling that he, that really made that show, not the pitch. So sometimes when I'm blanking on things too, I think, when was the last time I felt something really intensely and Mm. then i try and write something that speaks to that feeling if that makes sense i think that gets back to why am i writing about this you're communicating a a feeling right That that's kind of the basis of a lot of things a
0: thousand percent no i think uh allowing yourself to be able to say that feeling is enough like sometimes I stop myself. And I'm like, well, just because I'm feeling a feeling. That's not a reason to make a movie. No, no, it is like that. That is more than enough reason. Um, And, you know, I think sometimes we try to justify things to ourselves where we say, well, in order to make this movie or this book or anything else creative, I need to make this, you know, outline and this pitch deck and this and that and the third. And those are all things that will come with time and, you know, no doubt are important, but um, the the actual core reason is because I was sad one time and I felt this feeling and I felt like not enough people talked about it. And then it, that generates yeah. into this whole thing. Or I was really happy that one time that thing happened and like that can be enough. I mean, truly and honestly, I, I actually love that answer. Um, that That is really more than enough because like, I, I operate that way. I'm very like feelings based. It's a lot of times very hard to describe why I'm making a movie, but it's, it's because of an experience or because of a just very simple feeling. And that can be enough.
1: So. Yeah, I agree. Yeah.
0: Cool. Well, Melissa, thank you so much for taking the time. I appreciate you uh, going on tangents and talking about film and writing. and Yeah. Linklater. Like I said, I can talk Link later all day. So, <laughs>
1: <laughs> Well, this is really fun. I really appreciate yeah. you asking me. It wasn't too noisy. I noticed a little bit in the background. It was a little bit noisy at my I mean, house that was
0: okay you're all good my uh, dog was barking like crazy i think we got a package delivered so it's okay. all good
1: <laughs> <laughs> i didn't even hear it so you see, okay, cool. okay. I'm glad this
0: microphone is working <laughs> um well where can folks keep up with you obviously everyone go get all right all right all right i can say it's a very great book especially if you like link later you'll enjoy it um but where can they keep up with you and what you're
1: doing yeah, I mean, I I don't know if this was foolish or not, but I put an email address in the book. So you can, if okay. you want to email me, um, people have, lots of people have. Um, it's been really nice to hear people's reactions. You can email me at all right, all right 93 which is the year that days came out, ah, at, nice. at <laughs> gmail.com. Um, I'm on Twitter, but I'm not super on Twitter. That's
0: the best <laughs> way to be on Twitter. I, I need to get better at being on Twitter like that.
1: <laughs> but I'm also kind of out of a loop about everything, but um, those are two ways to, to yeah. contact me. <laughs> awesome. Cool.
0: Well, thank you again. Uh, y'all, if you're listening, we've got video episodes on YouTube, audio episodes, wherever you get your podcasts and we will see you in the next one. Thanks again.
1: Thanks so much.